Welcome to Chapter 2 of HealthSystemCIO.com's interview with Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and Engagement with the Indiana HIE. In this segment, Christian talks about why we need to stop comparing healthcare to the banking industry when it comes to interoperability, what he has learned about what physicians do and do not want, and how IHI is leveraging tools to improve data access and reduce unnecessary testing. A lot of people talk about you know, this thing of interoperability. Well, it's just like ATMs. Well, let's look at the history of ATMs for a second. Uh, they've been around for a long time. Uh, there used to be hundreds of ATM networks uh, that didn't talk to each other. You could only get money out from your, your own bank's ATM. And eventually, uh, the banking industry figured out that from a customer service standpoint, this is really what they wanted. They also figured out a way of funding it with uh, inter-bank uh, transfers of funds, you know, ATM fees, those type of things, and figuring, figuring out the technology and the standards to make those networks talk to each other. There's, I think there's still... 20-some-odd-plus uh, ATM networks, but you and I don't know it as a individual going to a bank, other than the fact is if it's not your bank's ATM, there's going to be a $3.50 transaction fee. You know, Do you accept it? So the other thing is healthcare is far more complex than you know trying to get out 10 bucks or 20 bucks out of your bank account. And so... Uh, it kind of depends. Are you looking for a textual report? Are you looking for a lab value? Are you looking for a referral document? So there's there's so much, much more. And then the other thing about the banking industry a lot of people don't really remember and understand is they also have separate networks for wire transfers and a lot of the other transaction types that banks uh, do. Those are not done on the ATM networks. Those are done on separate uh, secure networks that may or may not be owned by the, you know, the banking industry it, itself. And so we've got a lot to learn from them and the example I use on, on many times is railroads. Uh, most of the railroads had, uh, depending upon where your train was, uh, they had a different gauge of, of width between the tracks, and they were all done regionally. And it wasn't until the financiers at that time started buying up railroads but trying to do interstate or intercontinental uh, commerce that they realized that they were having to unload trains and reload trains because I can't run my train on your track. Yeah. And so there was a uh, an industry requirement from a commerce and a profit and loss standpoint for them to come up with what's now called the standard gauge. Uh, and interesting enough, the standard gauge is the same width as the wheels on a wagon. Mm. And they came up with the wheels on the wagon is because when you put two horses side by side, that's about the width you're going to get for a stable wagon. So those are some of the things that need to drive the standards uh, to yeah. help us uh, get to that point. Yeah, interesting. We see the banking example come up a lot, but what you were talking about with, with the different networks, I think that people forget that it's more complex than it, it, it really seems from the outside. And the thing about it is, is the reason I think it's so easy is because over, over the course of about 30 years, and that's how long it's taken us to get to where we are, that we can go to any ATM in the world just about yeah. and get money out of my checking account or my savings account sitting in Indiana. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. You know, we've only been at this like eight or nine years in healthcare 
in you know in seriousness of wanting to do this stuff. I mean, the exchange I work for is one of the oldest in the country. It's been around for a long time, and you know I think we're fairly mature. But you know, do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. Uh, can we learn from the other exchanges in the country? You bet. And that's the, one of the reasons that uh, we were one of the founding members of, of Chic, uh, is to create that collaboration of uh, HIEs so we can learn from each other. It's, it's kind of like, what do you call a mistake? Well, it's called experience if you learn from it. Right. Uh, and so what we were trying to do is, is share our collective experiences so everybody's not making the same mistakes over and over again. And hopefully uh, we can speed this process up a little bit. Uh, and it, it seems to be going really well. I just came back from uh, a planning and leadership meeting in, in Dallas. Um, it's really great to have the brain power that's sitting in that room trying to work together to figure out, okay, here's what we're doing in Indiana. Okay, what are you, what are you doing in uh, Colorado? What are you doing in Arizona? What are you doing in Oklahoma? What are you doing in Michigan? And that kind of stuff. And so, you know, trying to get those, uh, those collective uh, gray matter together is uh, extremely beneficial. Yeah. Now, one of the things you had uh, briefly mentioned before was community hospitals. And, you know, obviously we've been seeing the trend for, for a while, for a couple of years now, of hospitals, you know, becoming bar- part of bigger systems. But yep. for, for those that, that don't, um, I would think that uh, having these types of, uh, you know, HIEs and pilots is, uh, is something that, that can really help them to stay independent if that's what they want to do. Well, I, I was, you know, at a community hospital for a long time. And I, I have to say, when John, who's now the CEO of uh, this organization, and John's a friend of mine. We've been we've known each other for a long time. He was in charge of business development, so he came down to Southwest Indiana to talk to me about hooking up to the exchange. And I said, John, you know, most of your business right now is in Indianapolis. Uh, our referral patterns, you know, take us south to Evansville and Louisville and St. Louis. So there's really not a great deal of value of us being able to exchange data with the Indianapolis hospitals. Well. Then it wasn't until we were starting to wire up the Evansville hospitals and the ones in South that that we decided that that was a really more important thing. So I think that working with the, the HIEs to create that value around what those referrals are. And this exchange is a little different from some because we can cover the grand majority of the state of Indiana, we still have a, a, a few hospitals that have not connected to anything as, for a variety of reasons, and I'm not going to you know try to uh, read their minds, but uh, of why they haven't they haven't chosen to do that. But I think that there are there's going to be continue to be more compelling requirements to do that from a a data sharing uh, and clinically integrated network. I know the physicians I talk to. Uh, are looking at ways of leveraging the data to help them inform themselves and their colleagues about the care of the patients. And when we we've done some strategic planning and you know met with a lot of the CMIOs, and the physicians say, "Don't tell me what I already know. Tell me what I don't know." Yeah. And they're also saying, "You know, present the information to me without me having to go hunt it." I've had a lot of conversations, particularly when I was working in Georgia. When the physicians were, you know, complaining about the volume of information that was contained in the transition of care CCD, he said, "You're giving me a bushel basket of data, 
and you're asking me to wade through it to find something that may or may not be important, and it's just not worth my time mm. to go do that. There are other ways I can get that you know the same information, but make it make it a better use of the physician's time. And I absolutely agree. And I, I'll give you a couple examples of some things that we're we're thinking about doing and. You know, we're very fortunate of having a great relationship with the Regan Street Institute, some really, really smart MD, PhDs, uh, researchers, um, and Regan Street and IU Health is kind of where this exchange grew out of years ago. And then in 2004, we incorporated as a an entity uh, in its own and moved out from underneath the feathers, I guess, of, of some other hen that was, you know, sitting on the eggs. They hatched us. So if you're an ER physician and the patient walks in the door and has a chief complaint of chest pain, there are a handful of things that that physician wants to know about that patient from their past medical record. Have they been admitted recently anywhere else with that same chief complaint? Do they have a history of you know, coronary artery disease, heart attack, and that kind of stuff? Have they had a cath lately? Have they had an echo lately? What does their last troponin levels look like? Where did they have their last EKG, and can I see it? Uh, to do comparisons from a historical standpoint. Well, wouldn't it be great if we let the machine learn what that physician routinely looks at and, and we have this massive lake of data that goes back many, many, many years and that uh, the system, once we have that secure relation, treatment relationship established, uh, with that physician for it to go query the data lake, and that's my phrase, um, and bring that information back to the physician, just present it to them. They don't have to do anything. So what we've done is we've created an interim step uh, in that uh, because there are some hooks and things that need to be written inside the EMR systems to, you know, to do that, or there has to be some layered software on top of it. Uh, and so what we're, we've done is we've created a Google search type of uh, approach uh, for what we call the IMPC, the Indiana Network for Patient Care, which is the clinical data repository that we have. And they can do safe searches by physician. Uh, and so a friend of mine that's an ER physician at Eskenazi Hospital, that uh, he has one that he calls chest pain. And he goes up to the search bar at the top of the screen, taps in chest pain, and he goes out and queries uh, and searches the IMPC for those type of things. Give me the list of the recent admissions that patient has had. Does the patient have, you know, I need some labs and those type of things. And it just it lands him back on the search page and lists out that information for him. Now, he had to do something. He had to go initiate a search but he didn't have to go look for each one of those things. He just went out and looked for a group of those things predicated upon uh, a safe search. You can do the same thing for abdominal pain. You can do the same thing for back pain. Uh, you know, you get a patient that comes in with, you know, just nondescript chronic back pain. Wouldn't it be great for you to know if that patient, uh, it truly does have a substance abuse problem and you need to get them some help? Yeah. rather than you, you not know that that patient was just last yesterday, last night, in another hospital emergency room with the same chief complaint. So I think that there are ways we can use the data to better inform and assist the physician, not you know replace their knowledge, but you know add to their knowledge based upon what their habits are. Uh, and, you know, Two physicians may have two entirely different approaches. That's fine. 
you know, we don't need to uh, fence them in to say, okay, doc, you got to do it this way. They need to be able to practice medicine the way they were trained to practice medicine. Yeah, that's a really good point, and, yeah. and one that I'm sure that you've you've heard a lot from the physicians, and in terms of the frustrations that they have. Oh, absolutely. The thing about it is, is that with anything that I mean, if you look look at the cars you drive today, I mean, my wife's van. This thing's got so many features on it, but it helps me not to do something stupid like, you know, change lanes and there's a car beside me or back up and there's somebody walking behind the van. So we're going through these iterations, uh, and some of these iterations may be painful uh, because, you know, what we think may be the best thing when we actually put it into practice, not really the best approach of, of doing this. And so... Uh, we, we've got to go through those iterations. Now, the, the problem is, and it's not really a problem, is that we just have to be careful. We're actually dealing with human beings, uh, and we, we don't have the privilege of going out and experimenting, uh, will, will this work or that work? And so we've got to figure out ways of doing it and through pilots and other things to make sure that uh, it's like clinical trials. You do it on a subgroup of people or a population and see if it works. If it doesn't work, then you don't release the drug. And the same thing with what we're doing with some of the pilots we're doing is, uh, you know, let's let's see if it is beneficial. If it is, great, we'll roll it out. And if it's not, uh, we'll go back to the drawing board and have more conversation with more physicians. Right. I mean, one of the things that uh, the federal government is mandating, mandating these days, and I think it started uh, just recently around the appropriate use of uh, imaging and ionizing radiation, uh, requiring folks to uh, make sure that if you're going to do another cardiac scoring on this patient, when was the last one the patient had, where did they have it done, and what were the findings? You know, is this next cardiac scoring you're going to do worth the amount of radiation the patient's going to receive? You know, being able to inform, you know, using that data uh, is extremely important. Now, and the other piece that I don't think this is part of the mandate, but I'm not certain about, I've got a radiology background, so I have a tendency to follow some of this stuff. There was some conversation about somebody keeping up with what the, you know, the total, di- total body radiation for a patient over a lifetime. Well, my goodness, uh, how many different places have, have you had an x-ray done? Unless we've got a way of gathering that data from all those sources, who's going to track that? Uh, I, I don't know. And so we need an opportunity to, you know, to do that and provide that information uh, to the physician when they're about to order something. I'll, I'll give you a, an example of something recently happened uh, with my son-in-law. He was supposed to go for a radiology study, and uh, they had it all set up, and he was... He'd taken off work, and he was driving to it, and he got a phone call from uh, somebody in the radiology department and said, you know, we just don't really think that this test is warranted uh, at this point in time, and so we're, we're going to cancel it. Hmm. Well, gee, wouldn't it have been better if he had known that before he'd taken a day off work uh, yeah. or yeah. taken a half a day off work to go have the study done? Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we saved him the ionizing radiation, but we created an inconvenience in his life. And so we, we can do better. Uh, and I think we will at some point in time do better. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes 
at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.